the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, when the going gets tough, the tough get creative. Come the revolution, the paper off the bottom of the roll, people, will be the first up against the wall. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right now. Welcome to the Bay and Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. We continue our roundtable discussion on creativity, how to get it, how to use it, and how to keep it, with part two of a two-part interview with authors Lois McMaster Bujold, Wen Spencer, and Brendan Du Bois. This is not your ordinary writing panel kind of discussion. These are productive, popular authors who've been at it a while, pulling back the curtain of their art and craft to get at some of the basic processes they use to create the books you enjoy. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Rango's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now the news. More September e-arcs have left the log chute and are making their way down the river of good reading. Now an e-arc is the car lover's code word for a Lamborghini painted matte gray with a radar scrambling stealth coating. It's illegal in 35 states and frowned on in the others. If you get caught with it, oh wait, that's not it at all. An eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy, which is a gloriously typo-rich galley proof of a book that we will sell to you months before the book is available at bookstores. Why? Because we figure if you like the thing enough, you'll go ahead and buy the hardcover, trade paperback, or final ebook versions to have it and see if the new Cincinnati space station actually should have three ends, or if it lost one in the freezing vacuum of space, where ends are out. Anyway, out now is Come the Revolution by Frank Chadwick. This is the sequel to How Dark the World Becomes, and Frank's cynical but good-hearted gangster-turned-protector-of-alien-kids is back, saving the day in his somewhat cynical way. Also out is Stormfront by Robert Conroy. This is a thriller set in the small town of Sheridan, Michigan where two murderers are loose in a place cut off by the storm of the century. And Bob Conroy, having been from Michigan, would know about those storms. It's up to policeman Mike Stewart to keep a reign of terror from descending on Sheridan while the storm rages on. This is the late, great Robert Conroy's final novel in the pipeline, so check it out, really do. Come the Revolution and Stormfront E-Arcs are available at BaneEbooks.com. Hurry and get them because the e-arcs disappear when the final version of the book is published. Banybooks.com Here is part two of our two-part roundtable discussion on creativity. How to get it, how to use it, and how to keep it. Featuring Lois McMaster Bujold, the creator of the Vorkosigan saga, and Miles Vorkosigan. Wen Spencer, creator of the Elf Home series, and mystery writer and new science fiction author here at Bain, Brendan Du Bois. Is um, <clears throat> picturing the reader as you're writing, I mean, the reader hasn't read it when you're writing it. Um, does that help you, give you structure? Um, thinking, do you picture a reader and does that uh, influence your creativity? Or do you just do it and then? <laughs> yeah, think about the reader later. I, I would say certainly picturing the reviewer would kill creativity right there, dead. Um, <laughs> very good, very good. So you got to keep them out, and you know the editor has no place in that. You know the editor will have their place later, but the internal editor, you know, doesn't. You know they can also kill the forward you know, motion, and you know, and, and trying to imagine not only end reader. Trying to please everybody, which is what basically you're trying to do because you want the biggest audience possible, that too would make you crazy and yeah, and not be useful. So I think, you know, first of all, you have to please yourself, and then you have to try to make it as coherent as you can. Mm -hmm. now, the, um, I agree. I, I write to, for myself. Uh, you don't want to confuse write, your reader. 
You want the reader to understand what you're trying to tell them, um, but you're not trying to please him. So you worry about communicating, most of all. Am I really, is somebody else understand what this is? Mm-hmm. Is it clear they went out the door? Is it clear that they, they're setting the table? Is it clear who's talking? Um, I, I spend a lot of time with that because um, you're so in the story, it'd be easy to overlook. Um, and that's the one thing I get, I, I find the most changes on my manuscript is is when I fail to do that and the copy editor fixes it to what he thinks is the what's going on. And I'm like, okay, I totally fail to communicate in that sense because that's not what's happening here. Um, but, you know, you can't please everybody. Brendan, what were you? Like I said, I, I write for myself to entertain myself tell a story that I think I would enjoy reading, but I also am cognizant that there's going to be a reader out there whom I want to be as equally excited by the story, and I want to make the story crisp and clear and compelling and not confusing. And I never think about critics or, sorry, Tony, editors. I think about myself and my readers and go on from there. Well, you turn them in pretty clean, I have to say that much, Brendan. <laughs> I think you, Tony. I appreciate that. So, uh, I mean, is the 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 moment of getting inspired while you're writing a scene, um, when you need a little thing and you don't know what it, you need a twist, you need a, a a secondary twist in the scene because it's just not, you know, it it doesn't, it, it's not what you want. Um, is that a different moment of creativity? How do you get that? Do you ask for it and wait for it to come? Do you? Uh, kick yourself in the butt somehow mentally? Um. I do all of those things. I whine at my friends, um, you know, send emails to, you know, my test readers. What do I do with this? Uh, and I will, you know, I will talk it through. I will come up with two or three ideas and they'll just lie there and not be right. And then, you know, I can be stuck for quite a long time, you know, waiting for that just the right thing. And then, uh, when it drops in, it's like a miracle. There's there's your muse, you know, dropping joy from heaven. It's like, oh, I can do this with that. That will work. Uh, and then we're off and running again. But, yeah, those are sticky bits. It, when you say you're waiting, basically, so what you're doing is a lot of, well, I could do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do that. And you're waiting for that writer instinct to say, yes. Because um, the writer instinct is saying, no, 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 no. Um, because I'm so messy and such, I have a thousand different ways of going at it to try to tackle the problems I've created. And it ranges from, you know, taking a big sheet of paper and writing out all the plot lines in different colors. Um, I got stuck in... Um, Endless blue. I'll never do boats again. Um, with boats, the villain has to have a good reason to show up and twirl his mustache, and he won't go away until he gets what he wants. Instead of just breezing into the office, uh, snarling a little bit and leaving again. Um, and so for Endless Blue, I actually, at a convention, uh, had chairs with the names of boats and cards from the names of the characters going, okay, this boat goes here with this character, and then this character gets on this boat, and they go over here, because I just couldn't figure out how to write the scenes, because there's so much distance involved. So you keep on trying anything until something clicks. This sounds a lot different than, I mean, you characterized um, initial inspiration as something like a dream that wakes me up. Um, have you ever been, have you ever woken up with a solution to a, a problem in a scene? Um, yes, but sometimes it's not a good solution. The dream self is not a very good job, um, judge of things. Um, so is this kind of creativity different in kind than the other, or is it, 
it, it's all part of the spectrum. Everyone, that's the question. Uh, for me, when I'm working on something, I'm always working on it. Even when I'm away from the keyboard, there's a part of my mind that is chugging along, tossing random bits and pieces out. So that I'm always working on it, which sometimes distresses my wife when she says, did you hear me? And I want to say yes, but actually part of me was, you know, going hand-to-hand -hand against an alien invader. Um, and that is part of my creative process is that I'm always working on it. The minute I get up, the minute I go to bed, there's a part of my mind that is churning through plot possibilities, characters, for the scene and the upcoming scene I'm working on. So it's not like I'm not thinking... It's not like I focus immediately when I'm sitting at the desk. It's like it's always on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. That seems to be characteristic of everyone. What about when you hit a block, though? Or, or have you any of you ever really been blocked? Um, or just slow-going problems? Does creativity ever seem to flee in the midst of writing? And is this a symptom that you might use to diagnose a problem with the story you're telling? Or you just wait for it to come back? Yeah, I have, uh, there's two different levels that I would answer that. One is the sort of the mid-book block where, where the story stalls because what I thought I was going to do isn't what I'm going to do. People talk about their characters running away with the stories. Mine go on sit-down strike. You know. <laughs> wait. <laughs> All right, this, is, this isn't working. We're going to wait until you come up with something better for us to do. We're just going to sit here with our arms folded and buoy on you. So that's, that's one kind of block. And then the other kind of block uh, comes from, like, life distraction. Major surgery, that'll do it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, True. Death of a family member, uh, you know, other things that, uh, that can happen. Um, uh, I've watched people get sucked into Internet flame wars, that'll do it. Um, <laughs> Man. All kinds of things will, uh, exterior things will stop you. Uh, but that's just because your brain circuits are being diverted from their job of thinking up the story to, you know, worrying about all these other things. I have found for myself, the thing that gets me stuck the most is I've given the character too much information, and it changes what they're going to do next from logical to illogical. And my logic in my brain is going... No, that doesn't make sense, but it's not speaking loud enough for me to understand. Um, so you, you get this, I want to write them going off and doing X, but, you know, it doesn't make sense that they go do that. And then I realize, oh, I gave them too much information. It's kind of like if you're doing a treasure hunt and you actually give the hero all the clues they need to dig up treasure, which ends the story, and you're like, but you don't want them to go end the story right now. You're in the middle of the book. Mm -hmm. so you first start throwing things in their path to keep them from doing it, and then you realize, you know, if I just take away that knowledge of where the treasure is, they won't go off and do this. They can go off and do something else, and then I can start writing again. Um but that's like 50% of my writer's block is suddenly realizing uh, two things back, I made a mistake. I'm fortunate, and I'm knocking on wood as we speak, never to really have experienced a true writer's block. But I've had slowdowns where, you know, instead of eagerly going to the keyboard, I'd rather go mow the lawn or go grocery shopping or clean out the lint in the dryer, which is my mind telling me that something is just not right here. And the, the challenge, is, as Wen just said, is realize as you go through it, you made a mistake earlier on where something illogical has happened, and your characters or the story are just saying, hold on, you can't proceed until you fix this problem. And that happens to me more often than not than, than just staring and not writing. It's a way of, of, of the, I don't know, the creative process, the writing process, where your fingers won't cooperate anymore. Somewhere back there, someone's is saying, stop, proceed no further, you've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my husband yeah, always knows I'm in trouble when the house is clean. <laughs> <laughs> if he comes into a spotless house, he's like, oh, writing's going badly, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the creative writer's block that way when, 
when it's keeping you from making a mistake. Yeah, it's a good kind of writer's block. It's not all bad. Yeah. The what about the opposite problem? Um, the uh, bloggeria. The <laughs> people talk about their characters getting away from them. I, I tend to think this is less of a problem for professional writers. But um, have you written a book and had to throw half of it away? Yeah. Uh, for me, never. For no, me, I, I guess it's my journalism thing where I, always, I, I, I try to put down only that which needs to be put down. Mm-hmm. I haven't done that very often. Once I threw away five chapters, that was extremely unusual because the character had simply made a wrong turn and I had to like stop and go back and have something else altogether happen. Uh, but uh, usually... Since my first novel, a long time ago, uh, usually I try not to do that because it's not efficient. And that was part of the whole endless blue problem was I had set up the um, main character of Paige wrong. I had put her in the wrong position in life. And because it's the ocean-going boats, um, she really needed the ability to move around freely and make choices um, because it meant getting on another boat and going, you know, 10,000 miles out of the way. If she And uh, I initially started her out as a slave, and she, of course, had no choice as to where she was going. So for her to change directions um, was impossible. And I had to rewrite the beginning uh, three times because I was get to the certain point where she would have to start making radical decisions and she had no power because she was stuck on this boat. Like I said, never going to do boats again. Gene <laughs> <laughs> um, Wolfe has, has written somewhere, he's, he's written a lot of wonderful stuff about writing process um, that sometimes he has to starve his muse that is he has to cut off input to to get going again like uh, you know no tv no reading all the things that you know that feed your uh, your creative size he has, have any of you ever done that to jump start to to make it scream or, or do you treat it more kindly uh, i certainly have to yeah, input and output are two different modes and i can't run them both at the same time so when I'm writing heavily, I pretty much stop reading, uh, you know, stop viewing, uh, stop having input because then I can't hear myself think. Hmm. So yeah, uh, sure. As for me, uh, like I'm writing a mystery novel or a thriller novel, I read nonfiction. Otherwise, I'll get depressed or get waylaid into doing something else. And I tried not to read in the genre I'm currently working in. How's that for an answer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is the I go ahead, Wynn, sorry. I was gonna say I'm I'm much the same. It's um when I'm actually getting a lot done, everything gets turned off. Um I mean I, I stun people when I say, Well, I've never watched Lost or Battlestar Galactica or Fringe or or or, or Firefly or anything. I just was working and that was creative input and I avoided it um, but when I do get stuck um, I do turn and open up the gates and binge on something um, what about between projects then yeah like the, the you do but when you know you've you've done you're done with a book in the, in that feeling of re- whatever it is relief um, oh hell <laughs> um, uh, do you do you have a process of winding down and getting on to the next thing anyone clean house clean house clean house tradition uh-huh. yes um, traditional um, you get a book done you mail it in and you start deep cleaning as long as you can stand it, which is usually two or three days. Uh, because, 
you know, when you're finally getting down to the very end of the book, you, you don't want anything to interrupt you because, you know, you finally get on all the threads tied together. Um, everything kind of goes out the window unless it, you know, people will die without it. You know, you put out fires, um, you unclog toilets, but next to that, it's kind of like, nope. Um, my first thing is I deep clean. I feel just an utter relaxation that this sucker's done and off my plate. And the most bizarre thing is a week or two weeks or three weeks later, I'm feeling jittery that I'm not working on something and i got to find something else to start working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I have that, but it's getting longer and longer between those two phases. Yeah, the finishing a book is wonderful. It's like, oh, God, it's like a thousand-pound weight off your shoulders. And then, uh, then you do the necessary shoveling out of everything that's piled up and then and then I can read crap for the next X months, you know, or I can I can watch T V, I can watch do, you know, see all kinds of things. I can let stuff into my head that that would have jostled my thoughts previously. Yeah. Uh, now I can you know, now I have this, this open uh, there's nothing I'm protecting, I guess, uh, from the outside input at that point. Do you? Do any of you feel that? Um, have you gotten the idea for the next one while you're trying to finish the current one, and it and it proves distracting, or um, it uh, it it takes over for a while? All the time. Um, and, and me tinker was halfway through Tainted Trail. I got stuck, and that was one of those gave the characters the wrong idea um, information, and I didn't realize it. It was my second book, and I didn't recognize it. Um, so I got distracted with Tinker and wrote, like, the first third of it. Um, so I, I, I have it all the time. When I'm working on something, I'm always looking ahead to the next project, either by reading up on it or doing a little outlining. I, I sort of see it as a little reward for for grinding on the project I'm working on now because in the back of my head, it's always the next one will be easier or more fun or more adventurous, you know, so let, <laughs> let's just keep at it. And of course, I've been saying that for 20 years, so. <laughs> yeah, I found that uh, that I can uh, set aside and then just make some notes and that'll be enough to like, you know, capture the idea and, you know, set it, set it in the back of the notebook for, you know, when I'm done with the thing and I will look at it again. And, a couple of those have turned into uh, later projects, and, and a couple others I looked at them later, and they just they died in the meantime, like like something caught in the walls. But um, so uh, so yeah, making notes seems to take uh, take care of that for me. Um, beyond writing, uh, how does being a professional creative artist affect your approach to life, or does it? Are you just like everybody else only? You have this weird side, or in each of you individually, how do you feel about that? Well, for me, um, go ahead, go ahead, ahead, jump in. Go ahead, Wendy. I'm sorry. I'll go. I'll go last. Uh, Okay. Um, I uh, I took a break from writing um, for about a year and a half, and it was amazing how empty my head was. Um, I felt like. Somebody moved all the furniture out of a house, and, you know, the words were echoing. Um, it was really odd to suddenly find myself nothing to do with my brain. Um, and, but you do um, have to have a very understanding spouse um, because you're always working. It doesn't shut off. That's true. You're always working. Um, in the way I look at things, the way I see things, sometimes I, you know, bring them in and interpret them, or say, "Oh, I can use this," or "I can use that." Your brain's always working, and uh, I think that might be part of it. Um, a joke I like to say is: once I was driving up north and came by a yard sale, like a like a flea market, and they had for sale tarps, ropes, knives. And I thought to myself, oh, that's a great survival kit for a serial killer. You know, that's kind of how my mind works. 
<laughs> yeah. A bunch of writers sitting having a dinner table conversation could be really disturbing to the people next to them. Uh, Ain't that the truth? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I've sometimes wondered if, if writing novels uh, and fiction isn't uh, isn't actually a dissociative disorder. It's you know something that we do to keep our brains busy so that we don't make ourselves crazy. Um, so yeah, I've so if we all had the right medications, that, yeah. nobody would need fiction anymore. Right. Speaking morbid thoughts, but go ahead. Yeah. And readers have that same experience too. We want to escape into those worlds, or else we'll go insane. Mm -hmm. um, the alternative is looking at what's around us, and that's just unbearable. <laughs> it is. It is. Or it, it gives us tools for dealing with with, with what's around us as well. Um, it, you yeah, know, I guess things that we didn't consider on before. That subject sometimes. Go ahead. Yeah, like how a serial killer would deal with this situation. <laughs> right. So, um, what individually uh, is there anything that really gets you feeling creative, or inspires uh, creativity, or inspires you? Um, what is is the thing your go to thing? Each of you, um, or is there? For me, there isn't one thing. You know, it's just there's the general sort of cultural filter feeding, uh, and uh, and that goes on pretty much all the time. Um, and all the experiences that you have, you know, even the ones that aren't directly, you know, anything to do with writing, uh, all feed into you know, eat, all feed into your store of, of things mm. you can draw on. So live life. Uh, so yeah, nothing. Uh, but yeah, there is a very empty feeling when you want an idea and you don't have one, and you're thrashing around looking for it. Anyone else? Uh, nature. I feel. Uh, yes, go ahead. The keyboard, and I when I sit the keyboard and I pull up what I wrote the day before, I reread it, and that gets my mojo going. It's like, yeah, yeah, let's get back in the story. There's more to tell here. Let's get going. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, when I've for me, I have a quota each day that I like to meet. And if I've met or exceeded my quota, I feel very satisfied. And if circumstances don't allow me to write for a particular reason or the writing just doesn't go well, I feel almost a little sense of emptiness or, or melancholy that it didn't do what I like to do every day. You know, I, if I can't write every day, I do feel you know, almost melancholy that I wasn't able to get to it. And when? I'll share this. This I'll share this. Um, I I kind of got stuck in the middle of um, Wood Sprites, my last book, and uh, I wasn't sure what was wrong. Um, it, the, the, one of the downfalls of being a writer is uh, you've got this massive thing that you know trying to go to somebody and ask them for help. It, it takes you 45 minutes explaining what's wrong before that you can ask them a simple question um, or should he leave or should he stay um, I couldn't quite put my finger on it what was wrong and I actually binged on all of Lois's mouth books and uh, <laughs> by the time I got done with all the mouth books I realized I was writing a caper novel and uh, I'm not sure why the two connected for me, but after I got done, I was like, it's a caper novel, and I need to go big, and i got to go over the top. Um, you. And that really, you know, pushed me through. But um, I, I really enjoyed doing that. Yeah, you get ideas from other people's fiction, but not in the way non-writers think you do. Uh, you go, mm -hmm. oh, I see what she did there structurally. I can use that. Yeah. Right. Uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, um, what about parting thoughts? Uh, anything that you would like to uh, to say that I haven't uh, brought up? Anybody? I think you did a marvelous job corralling the three of us to say what we thought about creativity and writing. All right. Do you think we've... Anyone else? Uh, I can work it back in also. Yeah. I usually think of creativity as one of those uh, hamsters on an exercise wheel. 
It's addicted to crack. Um, <laughs> and tell it, you don't use it. it. The hamster gets away and it gets into rehab. And, you know, the ideas don't come. And it's very hard to, like, track down that hamster and get him re-addicted and back on the wheel. But, you know, you need to get that constantly going, constantly going, constantly going for the creativity to work. You can't just use it now and then. It's going to be a constant thing. Um, and once it gets up to speed, it, it spits out ideas faster than you can actually use them. So you do have the, you write things down and you put them aside for when you do have time to work on them. Um, it's something I hear a lot is I'm afraid to use up all my good ideas on my first book. But <laughs> use all your good ideas because you'll think of more. Yes, that's, that's important. Writing is hamster, hamster torture. Now, there's a uh, there's a new metaphor. Anything else, Lois? Ah, generally about creativity. Yeah, there there's more. You know, there's more where that came from, and you can get to thinking there isn't, and and that's wrong. I think that's a that's one of those self blocking things that writers do to themselves. Uh, so yeah, you know. Um, Basically, between every book, I forget how I wrote. You know, I have no idea how I did that, uh, but it does seem to come back. So, uh, so I guess you just have have faith and keep soldiering on. <laughs> well, I want to thank Lois McMaster Bujold, Wynn Spencer, and Brendan Dubois, wonderful science fiction and fantasy authors all, and all Bane authors in one form or another, for being part of our Creativity Roundtable today. Thanks so much, folks. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel, of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 10 So, I see you made the news, Dr. Curry said, moving his cursor to highlight particular points of the virus. His voice was muffled by the moon suit. I didn't really have a way to avoid them, Sophia said, carefully squirting prepared attenuated virus into vaccine bottles. Well, if I'd known they were going to be out there, we could have taken a back way, I suppose. This isn't something we want to end up on the nightly news, Dr. Curry pointed out. Tell me about it. Although it already has. Curry gestured to one of the plasma screens. The YouTube video was of a reporter outside a warehouse. The caption said, Vaccine Chop Shop, found by NYPD. I hope like hell that's not us, Sophia said. The sound was turned down. Drug dealers, Curry said with a snort. So we're in competition with drug dealers, Sophia said. How drug dealers get involved anyway? People want the vaccine, Curry said looking around at the laboratory he'd been provided. Drug dealers fulfill economic needs that others can't or won't. I don't know that I'd want to get vaccine from drug dealers, Sophia said, not knowing what I know about how it's produced. And that's here. In which you are wise, Curry said with a snort. Over 200 people have become infected due to bad vaccine. If it's not properly attenuated, instant zombie. You're sure this is attenuated? Sophia said, holding up one of the vials. That's what I'm checking, Curry said, gesturing at the screen he was using. The binding sites are still there, but the RNA is well and thoroughly trashed. 
I'd say that this RNA has less coherence than rabies, but the binding sites are about as robust. That's good for vaccine. Not sure what it says about the organism long term. What is worse, most of the vaccine that's being banded around in the city is nothing but colored water. Why colored? Sophia asked. She held up one of her completed vaccine bottles to the light. This is clear. Because they're drug dealers? Curry said, shrugging. People want to see something for their money. Who's going to believe a drug dealer who gives them a shot of clear liquid? Who's going to believe a drug dealer, period? I take it you've never gotten into illegal drugs, Dr. Curry said. I'm not an idiot, Sophia said. Drugs can seriously screw up your life. Of course, so can the zombie apocalypse, but I didn't have any control over that. So no, I don't do drugs. I drink a little, but my parents are okay with it in moderation. Faith doesn't even do that. She only drinks water and fruit juice. I suppose I should be impressed, Curry said. I've dabbled in drugs from time to time. Heck, I dealt when I was in grad school. If you have a biochemistry lab at your disposal, cranking out a little LSD is no problem. And it's one way to pay for grad school. Seriously? You might notice what we're making here, miss, Curry said mirthlessly. Point. One shot of zombie vaccine is going for $50 in the street, Curry said, which is a good price. The question being whether you're getting vaccine or not. Or good vaccine. Some of them even have mild drugs in them to give a feeling that something is happening, which, even if the dealers get the right attenuation, can cause the vaccine to be non-functional. Seriously? Sophia said. People who get their vaccine from a source like a drug dealer are getting what they deserve. Speaking of which, I'm done. Let me do a cross-check and then we'll get it over to Dr. Simmons, Curry said. Quality control is the best control. It had been filing. By afternoon of the next day, Faith had had enough. She'd had enough of the questions about her experiences in the tunnels... She'd had enough of the gossip. She'd found out quickly that her uncle's big secret was anything but. The rumors were all over the place that the bank, capital letters, was producing vaccine. And just as many rumors about how, most of them more or less dead on. She'd gotten tired of the sidelong glances and the vaguely worded questions about where her uncle was gone to all day. People even referred to the BERT van in the sort of hushed tones reserved for nuclear secrets. And then there were the subtle questions about, how do I get the vaccine? And she'd had it with filing. It was boring and pointless, since most of this was going to be relics of a bygone age in no time. She'd paid attention when she had to turn in her stuff the first day. All of her stuff was back in the apartment. That didn't mean there wasn't stuff, the locker room had everything she'd need to go zombie hunting. Faith stepped out of cover, aimed carefully, and zapped the zombie in the back with the taser. Nice, she said as the zombie dropped to the floor. She darted forward and slammed the narcotic injector into the back of its thigh, holding it as she thought the instructions indicated. She was rewarded by the two-and-a-half-inch needle driving through her thumb and a gush of tranquilizer squirting onto her face mask. Shit, she screamed, hopping around and shaking her hand. The needle steadfastly refused to exit her thumb. Cocksuck! Fuck! Rat turds! Ow! She grabbed the injector and pulled it from her thumb, tossing it across the corridor. Well, she said, shaking her head. At least it's numb. B. Mum. Oh, crap. No. No. Bad. The zombie was getting to its feet, which was the bad part. Besides being slightly stoned by the small dose of tranquilizer that had gotten into her system, and her right hand flopping uselessly. Very bad, she said, drawing another taser left-handed. She couldn't get her usual dead-on targeting since she was getting a bit of double vision. I think he's about... 
which was where he was. The zombie let out a screech and dropped to the floor, spasming, again. Perfect, she said, then wondered why there was blood dripping on the zombie's back. She looked at her hand and thought it through. There was blood dripping from her thumb. Blood pathogen, she said drunkenly. Not good. She pulled off the tactical glove and the rubber glove under it and looked at her thumb. It was swollen, bleeding, and discolored. Is that normal if you AD yourself with an injector? She asked the empty corridor. The answer was another zombie howl from the south, and the zombie was getting up again. She pulled out her last taser and fired, hitting it in the groin. I said, stay down, she said to the hissing and whimpering zombie. This is so not good, she said, finally injecting the zombie and then fumbling in a taser reload with one hand flopping useless. She could hear zombies heading her way by the flop-flop of their bare feet in the concrete. I really, really need to start allowing adult supervision. And reading the directions more carefully. And eating all my vegetables. They need these in semi-automatic, with a magazine. She turned and fired the reloaded taser just in time to stop the zombie coming from the north. There were two more in the other direction. Durante, Kaplan said, holding up the office phone. Your girlfriend's calling. I don't have a girlfriend, Durante said, working on paperwork. Turned out that even in serial killing, there was paperwork. Timesheets, materials. It just glossed over a lot of stuff. That would be the boss's niece, Kaplan said, grinning. She wants to talk to you. What now, Durante said, picking up the phone. Line two. Hey, Faith, how's the filing going? Uh-huh. How'd you get an injector stuck in your thumb? Kaplan spun around in his chair and quirked a Spock eyebrow. And how'd you run into a zombie? And you got the taser where? And you ran into this zombie? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Sure. You just stay right there, okay? We'll be down in a jiffy. Yeah. That would probably be best. Uh-huh. Bye-bye now. He hung up the phone and looked at the wall thoughtfully. Problems? Roll the full tack team to level B9, section 42, Durante said, standing up carefully. Loaded for bear, and I mean right goddamn now. Then he hit the door running. When Tom got there, it was all over but the flex cuffing. Faith was still up on the air handler, wrapping a bandage around her thumb. And there were nine, count them, nine zombies, male and female, on the floor. At least two, considering the cranial damage, involved the blood-splattered crowbar resting next to her. The security team wasn't bothering to flex-cuff those. Hey, Uncle Tom, Faith said, in a mixture of nervous and cheerful voice. Did you know your basement was absolutely overrun with zombies? I didn't. Wasn't really aware, Tom said carefully. Need to talk with Brad from Building Security about that. Faith, aren't you supposed to be up in the filing room? Yeah, Faith said. About that. Filing's not really my thing. And with the bad thumb and all, she said, holding up the appendage. Hi, Faith said, hanging her head. I'm Faith. I'm supposed to help with the mail. Uh-oh, Steve said, watching the approaching boat. The anchorage they were in was designated open. They weren't in a channel or anything. It was an out-of-the-way spot on the Hudson on the Manhattan side, but harbor patrols seemed to want to stop by. Stacy, police visit, Steve yelled through the hatch. He'd had watch. Roger, Stacy said. She quickly picked up the ready weapons. Two Siger shotguns, two pistols, and an M4 semi-automatic carbine. And began emptying them. That was simply a matter of dropping the magazines and storing them. Then she proceeded to lock all the weapons in their containers. By the time the boat pulled alongside, everything was locked down. 
and she and Steve were both in respirators with nitrile gloves on. Harbor Patrol, the loudspeaker boomed from the small trawler. Permission to come aboard for health and safety inspection. Granted, Steve shouted. It was muffled, so he waved for them to board. Not the best way to talk to police, wearing respirators, but they'd managed to avoid the flu so far, and the vaccine wouldn't yet have taken hold. Stacy, paperwork. On it, Stacy said, shoving the last pistol case into a locker and locking that. Good afternoon, sir, the lead officer of the two-man team said. His name tag read Torres. They were clearly bothered by the respirators, but they were wearing nitrile gloves. First question, are there any weapons on board? Yes, officer, Steve said. The two officers' body language went immediately to defensive. We're an associate security contractor for one of the onshore banks. We have quite a few weapons on board for that reason. Contractors, Officer Torres growled. Great, just flippin' great. May we use a certain amount of discretion in the conversation? Steve asked. Anything you say, we're required to restate it if so asked, the officer said. Discretion in that is all I'm asking, Steve said, grinning. We're a backup jump plan for some executives, in the event that things get bad enough that protection from law enforcement breaks down. The weapons are for protection of the executives. How many? Torres asked. With the weapons and ammunition, I'm sure you'd use the term arsenal. Steve said, smiling again. Stacy handed him the paperwork for the weapons, as well as the stamped form that they had registered as security contractors in and for the state and city of New York. The form included a list of all registered weapons, ammunition, and paramilitary equipment. Jesus Christ, Torres said. Arsenal is right. You can have all this stuff sitting in the harbor? Included in the paperwork is my BATF FFL license, Steve said calmly, as well as my certification as a Class Three firearms instructor, tactical firearms instructor, and law of weapons instructor. My wife is a tactical firearms instructor as well, and is a reserve Virginia police officer. This is not meant to be offensive, Officer Torres, but I teach police officers. Part-time, anyway. In Virginia his partner said. I once taught a class for some of your NYPD SWAT people, Steve said. A Lieutenant Hansen comes to mind? You mean Captain Hansen? Torres asked, suspiciously. Out of the 132nd? 510, 200, Steve said. This was five years ago or so. Weight may have changed. Blue eyes, shaved head. I detected balding. Wife's name, Cynthia, or something like that. Five years, and we only chatted briefly outside of class. Stay where you are, Torres said, pulling out his cell phone. He walked up to the front of the boat for the conversation. How's it going for you guys? Steve asked. All good, sir, the officer replied. My two daughters are on shore, Steve said. They paint a rather lurid picture. Lurid, the officer said. Vivid in color, Steve said. Presented in shocking or sensational terms. Sorry, I only instruct in firearm during the summer. The rest of the time I'm a high school history teacher. Got it, the officer said. My dad's a teacher. He used to spend summers and holidays working odd jobs. How's your family doing? Steve asked. So far so good, the officer said, shrugging. People are scared. I mean, what can you do about a plague? Steve tilted his head and tapped the respirator. They won't let us use those, the officer said balefully. I guess. He looked up as Torres came back from the front of the boat. Ozzy, huh? Torres said, looking at him oddly. I thought it was Irish. Australian accent mixed with Southern tends to sound that way, Steve said, trying not to sigh. That's a buttload of ammo, Torres said looking at the paperwork again. You get a fire on board and you're a floating bomb. Which is why we're anchored well away from other boats, officer, Steve said, as well as to avoid contamination. Can see you've got that down, Torres said, 
handing him back the papers. Those weapons do not go on shore until all your certifications have been processed, understand? We've had too many of you goddamn contractors getting gun-happy in the city. If it makes you feel any better, Steve said, I agree with your opinion of most contractors. They tend to be unprofessional nuts with delusions of grandeur because they can walk around with big guns. Part-time firearms instructor. Dealt with too many contractor wannabes. The captain said you were a straight shooter, Torres said. No pun intended. I'm glad he's hanging in there, Steve replied. I didn't really keep in touch, he added with a shrug. Not a round of ammo, not a single gun goes on shore, Torres repeated. I take it all your safety gear is complete. Inventory, location, and logbook, Steve said, handing over that paperwork. Yeah, we'll... He started at a honk from the boat. If it's clear, come back, the captain said over the loudspeaker. Priority call. Just, Torres said, looking both ways. We are not going to go zombie hunting in your city, officer, Steve said. We're perfectly content just sitting here. Torres shook his head and scrambled back over the side. You guys take care, Steve said, casting off their lines. And hopefully that takes care of that. I suppose hoping that there won't be any more crises today would be too much. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a deluge of creative juices flowing forth from the font of endless wonder, plus two free tickets each to an ultimate fighting smackdown between the collective unconscious and genetic determinism to Lois McMaster Bujold, Wen Spencer, and Brendan Du Bois. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. The Bain Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama. Presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. (laughs) 